0: Maybe see it, man. It seems like I'm in Disneyland or something. Disney World. <laughs> great job, you guys. Uh, great job, Jonathan. I'm hearing a little voice in my head say, "Say this," and then I hear another little voice say, "Don't say this." So I'm going to listen to that other little voice that says, "Don't say this." Uh, we're glad that you're a part of the family, though. And we're glad that you, uh, your gifts and everybody that stayed and put all this stuff up for the little kids. How many of you guys have, have seen that movie with Jim Caviezel in it? Uh, I forget the name of it. Sound of Freedom. Have anybody seen that movie yet? Great movie. I'm going to ask the same question next Sunday if I'm here. I want to see all these hands raised up. That's a great movie. We're talking about... Jesus says, suffer the little children to come unto me. Uh, s- great movie. So many kids trapped in a uh, sex trade and all that, those things, small, unimaginable at the age of kids that they still use for sex trades and all that. And it was just a great movie. I think the, I was too busy eating the popcorn like I do at, at movies. And I wasn't looking at the screen, but they told me, the people who I went with, they said that uh, it took them five or six years to make the movie and to release it. And all because of the government, it, 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 was, it's, it was so personable. And, it, and, it, and, it, and it, you know, sex trade is something that we could do a great job. We could stop it or come close to stopping it. But it's just the people, the elites, that keeps it going. And it's just a great movie. We need to be praying for all that. And that's why, and I say that because of the kids that are coming, whether it's five kids, whether it's 11 kids, whether it's 30 kids, whether if it's one child that shows up, we don't know what's going on in their lives. We're here to share Jesus Christ, the hope of glory with them. And so, everyone that comes out, just remember that and love on the kids, teach them about Jesus. Those seeds are being planted and they may never come up when we're around, but God is always working. So it's very important. Please do this. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. If I came up to you guys and handed you a card blanche, debit card, it's got more money on it that you could ever spend in this lifetime. It's, it's, it's a, the, the gold card. And if I gave that to you, I want to know the first thing you would buy with that card. Now, hold that thought. I'm going to come back to it. But, you know, cut loose. I know it's Sunday. You don't want to be thinking like that. But really think of the first thing that you would buy. I also read a survey about Americans. And they asked this question. If you could have an extra hour a day, you got 25 hours in a day, or if you could have $10,000 more a year on your paycheck, which one would you choose? What do you think Americans said? Eight out of 10 said, give me the money. I'll take the money. There was another at all poll came out not too long ago. They asked Americans this question. Real simple. Would you rather be rich or would you rather be thin? You know which one I chose. (laughs) Guess what Americans said? Pass the cheesecake. 83% of Americans said they'd much rather be rich. The fat thing wouldn't bother them so much if they were rich. My question is, what's up with Americans and this love and this drive for money? Why do Americans just want to so unabashedly go after getting more cash? Back to that genie gold card. I don't want you to, uh, I don't want to know what you would have purchased with your first purchase. I just have one question. Who is it for? Hmm. Don't be ashamed because eight out of 10 of us, we have this problem. I understand it because when I thought about unlimited resources, I didn't immediately think about you. And I'm sure you didn't immediately think about me. I thought about my broken down truck, not about your broken down car. I was thinking about improving my view in the backyard, not improving yours. I was kind of uh, thinking about a lot of places in my home that needs remodeling, not the places in your home that needs remodeling. And as we think about this and as we look at this today, your wish list, no matter how outrageous that wish list is, we have to understand it's no problem for God. The problem, as always, is with our motives. James 4, before we jump into 1 Corinthians 9, I'd like to take you to a a little passage. James says, just to remind ourselves, God has promised never to become our personal genie. He has never said, wait a minute, I could give you whatever you want, and I would if your heart was in line and in tune with me. But see, that's the problem with us people. Generally, our default mechanism don't go towards God. They generally go toward our own interests. And the Bible says that's the reason when we pray, we don't get answers to our prayers Verse 3, he says, we're talking about prayer, and you do not receive this, James 4 3, because you ask with, here's a good phrase, wrong motives. What would those wrong motives be? Great question. We'll keep reading. Here's the wrong motives, so that you may spend what you get on your pleasure. On your pleasure. See, you weren't thinking about me, and I wasn't thinking about you. And see, that's a bit of a problem here because according to the Bible, the problem is not that it's not about pleasing you. The resources that you have say your life. It needs to be thinking about someone else. And I think the proper proper biblical answer would be God, not about serving you, we should think about serving God. But if you've ever read through Acts 17, Paul's preaching to the Athenians, the problem with us serving God, it's a bit of a misnomer because God doesn't need anything. If you were to go this afternoon and knock on God's door and ask him, hey, can I serve you? Can I bring you? Can I give you anything? He's going to say, thank you very much. I don't need a thing. But this is what you can do. You can go to your neighbor. Remember the scripture says, John three sixteen. I laid down my life for you, the theme of that. So I want you to lay down your life for others. The constant focus is would you start putting other people first, putting other people's interests before your own. That would be a good idea. Because biblically, that's how it works. Because what we need to see is that your whole default set of desires is to please yourself. And that's really not the biblical calling. And what we need to do is start looking at other people's interests. Last week in chapter 8 of Corinthians, we looked at the goal of the Christian life is to be real careful that I accommodate my life to other people, specifically to their conscience. And I need to be careful to do that. And we talked about the fact that that will take sacrifice, laying down my rights. Some of my prerogatives need to be be let go by the wayside. That's going to take love. I got to be concerned about people. This will take some level of sacrifice. We talked about all that, but we never really got to the whole point. And that's what comes into clear focus in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. So turn with me there, and let's continue through the study of 1 Corinthians. And we will see as Paul turns the attention of this text to the whole focus of what this is about. And what we'll find is it's all about our priorities. It's all about who we're going to serve. It's all about who are we focused on to try and please. And ultimately, the answer should be God, because ultimately, I'm supposed to be doing something that is significant in their lives, in your lives. And that's what Paul starts to get at at the heart of the passage which we'll start on verse 19. I've decided to take the center of this chapter, lest I lose my bearing. And so it will be verses 19 through 23, we'll start on first. As he spells it out in the clearest terms, this passage, he says, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews to those who are under the law, as under the law, that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, not being without law toward God, but under law toward Christ, that I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. That's his goal. Now, this I do for the gospel's sake, that I might be partakers of it with you. So as he spells out the, in clearest terms, this passage, he says, though I am free, Paul's speaking about himself. And that's the catchphrase from chapter eight. I've got freedoms. I can do a lot of things. I got a lot of space. I have a lot of room to move around, and I don't belong to any man. I'm not a slave of people. I don't stand up and say I'm a slave of man. We talked about being a servant of Christ and all that. But, you know, now, interestingly, enough is my Christian life plays out. Here's what it looks like. I make myself a slave to everyone. I'll say that again. I make myself a slave to everyone. That's a pretty poignant statement there. Now I'm free, but I'm not a servant of Paul. I'm not a servant of David. I'm not a servant of Brian, but I make myself a servant to them a slave to them. In other words, I'm willing to take my prerogatives, my desires, my trivial interests, and I want to discuss subservient, put those in a subservient place to to someone else's need. I'm willing to do that. How does it work out in practical life? That's what we need to know. Well, before we get to that, what's the point? It's in the Bible. Here's the point. Bottom line of verse 19, Paul says that I might win the more. That's what I want to do. And obviously, he's talking about doing something significant in their eternal destiny. I want to win people to Christ. I am willing to take my interest and put them under their need. Now, how does he do that? How does that work practically? Verse 20 tells us, Paul says, And to the Jews I became as a Jew, that I might win Jews. When I go to a place primarily Jewish and I'm dealing with Jewish people, then I become like the Jews. You might say, wait a minute, PV. Remember last week we talked about the fact that I've got every right to eat or drink whatever I want if my conscience does not condemn me. But just because I have knowledge, that's the key, so what? It puffs up, but what should arrive is love. Because remember, love builds up, it edifies. But Paul says, I've got those freedoms. I can go and eat the BLT. I can eat the ham and cheese omelet. I got the right to do that, but when I'm with the Jews, you know what? I'm going to set those rights aside. Good boy, Paul. And I may have a real taste for bacon tomorrow morning, but here I am in this town, maybe in Antioch, maybe in Caesarea, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to be real careful. Matter of fact, I'm going to put that prerogative aside because what what I want to do with the Jews here, again, it says, I want to win the Jews to those who are under the law. Speaking of the Jews Paul is not just speaking to the matters of national origin here, but especially to matters of Jewish religious requirements. He says, as under the law that I might win those who are under the law. In other words, the ceremonial law, which is no longer enforced because it's been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I know that. So therefore, Paul says, it doesn't matter. You can wear the phylacteries, the dress of the Jewish people, or you can eat the kosher food, the dietary laws. Now, that really matters. But you know what? Paul says, I'll put myself in that situation. Not that I'm under the law, but I'll do that because I want to win those Jews who are under the law. Verse 21, Paul says, to those who are without law. That were Without law is animos. It means not having the Mosaic law. His conduct among Gentiles and especially 1 Corinthians, was without law. Not, and then he says, not being without law toward God, but he says, I am not animos. I'm not lawless or wicked but under, because I'm under the law of Jesus Christ now. What Paul is saying is he expects the spirit to empower him to enforce him that he walk and that he lives a godly life because now the Holy Spirit has come inside of him. He doesn't need the Ten Commandments anymore. That's why he says that I might win those who are without law. Now, some people don't have any problem with BLTs. I love them and ham and cheese sandwiches or omelets, and they're fine. Paul says, I'll become like one not having the law, though I'm not free from God's law. I am under the law of Christ. That doesn't mean I can open unfettered doors and do what I want. Though there are some with these conscience issues, because that's what we're speaking all about. What does your conscience say to these things you are doing? If your conscience is not seared, if their conscience conscience is not emboldened to do something that would defile them, Paul says, I'm good. Hand me the bacon. Pass me the bacon. I'm cool because I like to win those not having the law. Verse 22 tells us Paul says, To the weak, I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all men means save some. That's the first time that word save has come up to us. It's transitioning. Where you are at, which you're in the kingdom of darkness right now, he wants to save you and bring you into the kingdom. Paul says, now this I do for the sake of the gospel, that I may be partakers of it with you. See, i become all things to all men, Paul says, that I might by all possible means save some. That was his goal. That was his life goal's When he met Jesus Christ, the same life goals that we should have if we met Jesus Christ. And that's the first time the word saved is used. And he's changing what he's wanting to do is change their eternal destiny. We kind of learned that. But what we don't get clearly in chapter eight is what comes into focus here for the apostle Paul. He is a card carrying church planter. He is an apostle. He goes and he builds churches. He's saying, my whole goal in this community is to see them saved. Therefore, I'm setting aside some of my trivial things for things that are truly important. That's the whole theme of this, doing things that are truly important today. And that's the work we all have to do. We should be willing to ditch the unimportant for the important. I was reading on my phone, and there was an article about two feuding next door neighbors, and the whole feud turned into a lawsuit. And you'll never believe what they were feuding over. It was in, I think it was in San Diego. They were feuding over wind chimes. One wind chimes. One man had placed a wind chime on the front of his lawn on his own porch. Ding, ding, ling, ding, ling, ling, ding ding. His neighbor, which they said was about 30 yards down, told him, "Your wind chimes are going to drive me crazy. I'm going to pull my hair out. Please take it down." You know what the guy who had the wind chime said, "I have every right." And he was right to have this wind chime on my porch. Ding, 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 ding. After a couple of years, they went to court for wind chimes. They've been in court now for six years. Hadn't come to a conclusion yet. So I need to send them this link to this teaching here. I can help them out a little bit. For six years... They're talking about arguing about a wind chime. That's a relationship to things and the pleasure that I might derive from those things. Is that, is that not as important as people? Of course. All he had to do was take that wind chime down if he cared more about people than things. We come to find out, and he's not the only one, we care more about things than people. If if we didn't, if they didn't, they wouldn't have went to court, and they're still going to court for six years. The reason I say this is for 15 years, I couldn't believe this, this question has been asked to high school students, and this is the seniors. If their house was burning down, and you had to save your dog or either a stranger in your house, which one would you save? Eight out of 10 people, 15 years they've been asking these questions. I don't know if it's come to Gwinnett County yet. 15 years they've been asking this question. Eight out of 10 people said they would save their dog. Instead of a person, even though he's a stranger, in the image of God. Eight out of 10 says that. Is it because they've become familiar with their dog and they love their animal? Instead of saving someone in the image of God, they'd rather save a dog. That's sad, but that's what the world is coming to. God has saved us for his purpose. And that's to be, we're to be his hands and his feet to a lost and dying world. No Christian should live to themselves. The role that we are supposed to play in this world is Matthew 5, 13, Sermon on the Mount. This is what it says, verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? A little salt makes a big difference. If you don't believe me, next time you get a paper cut, just put one granule of salt on it. You will scream." Take one granule of salt and place it in your eye. You'll know the effect. That's the effect believers should be having in their neighborhood, in their county. That's what Jesus expects out of us. He said, he goes on to say, it is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. And that's unfortunately where a lot of our lives are. Because we haven't made it our goal to say we're here to make a difference. We're here to make a difference this week. Now, Paul's, remember, he's a church planner. His primary concern and the facet of making a difference is leading people to Christ. We need to teach people to be like Christ. We need to train people to serve Christ. We need to make a difference. We need to careful and let them understand that we're in a spiritual warfare here. We need to care for others' lives, and we need to bring them from whatever to the next level so they can continue to walk. And all I'm saying is we've got to say, hey, that's our job description. We are the salt of the earth. We're supposed to make a difference. If we're not making a difference What does that say about our lives? No matter how much fun we're having, no matter how many cool things we may do, no matter how many freedoms we get to exercise, it doesn't matter if we're not making a difference in others' lives. Finally, verse 1. Paul starts out, it seems to me the kids have been running the asylum ever since he hit Corinth. They're not listening. They're disrespecting their parent, Paul, until Paul, he can't take it anymore. It's built up in him. Parents, you ever felt like that before? And you just blurt out something. And they're true feelings, but they come out the wrong way. Well, that's what Paul does here. Verse 1. Paul says, am I not an apostle? You're not giving me any respect. That's the reason he says that. Am I not an apostle to you guys? Am I not free? I can do what I want to do. That's why I just wrote. Well, the Holy Spirit wrote chapters eight. Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord, not only on the road to Damascus, but again those three and a half years he spent in Arabia? Jesus is teaching him so many things, and he's understanding so many things. He he has to unwind all of Paul's theology and set it straight again for those three and a half years. Are you not my work in the Lord? Then he says, if I am, this almost reminds me of when my mom would just hit me with it. And she needed to a lot, by the way. With tears in her eyes, I believe Paul is about to do that. He says, if I am not an apostle to others, yet doubtless, I am to you, Corinthians, for you are the seal, that stamp, that wax seal when they were sending lumber down to the river to, for someone else to take. It has the seal on it. Paul says, you're my seal of my apostleship in the Lord. Your very existence authenticates that Paul is an apostle. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. The Corinthians are in the process of examining Paul still, ever since he's came to town. And the examination is related to him being an apostle still. Do we have no rights? And that word is exousia. Do I have no authority to eat and drink? He explained that in chapter 7. I can eat and drink anything I want to, as long as I can bless it just as they have the exousia to eat and drink, but has given it up for the sake of others. What Paul is mostly likely doing is arguing for the right to their support. And it's so funny. He, he, he lays out a brilliant case to his rights of you guys supporting me. And then I think in, chapter, in verse 10 or 13, he says, but I don't want it. But I want you to know that it's there for for me, I should be able to do that. He says in verse five, do we have no right to take along a believing wife as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? I mean, I can't have a nice domestic life too. I can't have that. Now think about this. We've already learned in chapter seven, Paul has set aside his prerogatives, his rights to not take on marriage and a family kids on his knee. He knows nothing about that. That would be really nice, and it would be really fun for Paul. It's fulfilling. It's cozy. It would be a beautiful Norman Rockwell picture. Paul wanted that too. It's great to do, and it's great to have, but Paul gives that up, and that's what he's telling the Corinthians. I laid all that aside. In Matthew and 1 Corinthians 7, Paul says, if you can do that, if you want to do that, you ought to do that. That's your right. That's great. And he says, I've done that, but I've got the right to bring a wife along if I want to. Because look at all the other leaders in the church. Look at all the other apostles. Look at the Lord's brothers. Look at Cephas. Now, Cephas, the argument, they don't think, most theologians think that Peter has never come to Corinth. He never came to Corinth. But they had heard so much about Peter that they still wanted to be like Peter. So that tells you a, lot, a little about Peter there. But most of them think he never came to Corinth. He's given up. Paul has given up certain freedoms. He's given up some comforts of life. Let's just put it this way. It would be nice for Paul after a long day of ministering to people in Quorum to come home, get a nice kiss from his beautiful wife, sit in the, in the recliner, and just enjoy the rest of the afternoon. That's his rights. He could do that. But once again, Paul gives all of that up to be a servant of Christ. I don't think, Miss. Saul of Tarsus would have understood that, would have went for that because Paul was sold out for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You might say, well, what if I'm already married? So what does this mean for me? See, I guess it has no application for me, but it has huge applications. Think about it. Is there nobody who's married? that has a passion for being salt and light now that they're saved in people's lives? Who has a concern for lost people? Who cares that their lives make a difference even though you are married? What about that nice Norman Rockwell painting? Paul says, see what I'm saying, nobody, and God proved this to me this last week, When I was just kicked back watching tennis matches on TV, I had my Sprite in one hand, my bag of chips in the other, and I was doing, I was feeling pretty good because I love tennis. I love watching it. And I said, man, this is the life. And then all of a sudden I get a text. Hey, could you meet me here? Could we do this? Or I got a phone call. Hey, can you meet me here? I put all that TV watching aside, and I went out and I ministered because that's what I'm called to do. And not only me, everyone who is a born again believer in Jesus Christ. When the phone call comes, whether it's your kids or your neighbor, you know how it is. You set everything aside and you go out and you minister. That's what Jesus is telling us we should be more alert at doing, just like Paul. Paul shouldn't be he shouldn't be the anomaly of this. Our lives should be like Paul because ministry is ministry. Whether you're teaching, whether you're serving in children's ministry, whether you're a mom or you're a dad or a student or a child, if you have enrolled and if you have enlisted in Jesus Christ, he is the captain. You already know what what the purpose is, what he's called us for. The action is in doing. We already know that we're supposed to set aside our lives for lives of our brothers and sisters, whenever it is. Whether it's two in the morning, anytime a brother or sister calls, we should be about helping them. That's what Paul is doing. That's what the Holy Spirit is wanting us to know here. This, This shouldn't be... Wow, anomaly, no. We should all live like this. We should all, if we're believers, we should put other people's lives first, ahead of us. You can't have that wonderful domestic life that your non-Christian friends have because my life is constantly being interrupted as yours ought to be. We need to be caring, caring, I just think about uh, the ministry Operation Christmas Child. Now, I'm getting on us a little bit right here. I'm, I'll tell you before I do it. I'm getting on uh, uh, Calvary Restore a little bit when I say this. I heard there was this church, about 50 members. They pack five to 700 boxes every year. That's my goal. That's my goal at, here at Calvary Store. That's what I'm trying to say. We should be packing boxes. We should be serving. Should, no, no matter how it looks like, we are here for Jesus Christ, and we should be serving him. We should spend ourselves, including me, serving the Lord. That's what Paul is saying. I have a right to pay patronage of you guys. I'm a tent maker. It's not that I love making tents. It's not that I love camping out. But this makes me some money so I can go to Whataburger and eat every week or something. Nobody has given me anything. And Paul is going to say, I haven't asked for anything. But for the other ministers who's coming behind me, you guys you should give them because they're spreading the gospel. That's what Paul is saying. It's not about my life. When, when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, same as you, when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, it stopped being about you. It stopped. It, at least it should have been, right or wrong. It, it, it should be. It's not about me anymore. It's about him. He's the captain. He's the leader. He is about Jesus, and that's what Paul is trying to get these Corinthians to understand here. I enjoy doing what I'm doing. He spe- let's, let's go to verse 6. Paul says, Or is it only Barnabas? He's still giving him a hard time. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? Huh. Paul says, I don't make these tents just to have fun. Once again, They're paying bills and and that's helping me, helping you not to be able to give me money because I don't want your money. Paul of Tarsus, once again, he's a church planner. He's ministering in the work that the Lord has called him to. But he's more than that also. He has another job. And he's building, he's making these tents. I remember, and believe you me, I'll say it. Because it's true. I remember when we first planted Restore. And I didn't get paid for a whole year. And my wife was saying, I hope we can make it. I hope we can make it. Then she said, I know we can make it. I know we can make it. But that was okay. Because this is what I love to do. A pastor said, you know you're called to teach when the Lord has spoken to you. But then heck, you can't do anything else. I was, telling, I was telling some other guys, every time I need some, something done to the house, I used to try, but I would make it worse, fixing something, doing something. I'm not good at that. And then I was telling the Lord, Lord, what am I good at? I'm okay at basketball. If I was six foot four, I'd be playing basketball. But that's another question. This is, what I, this is what I love to do. I enjoy studying the word and teaching. I love... It's something about teaching, and you see eyes light up like, I've never seen that. I get it. That's the greatest feeling in the world, besides then coming to know Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, you don't have to pay me. But other apostles... And other, because I think missionaries has a lot to do with his training too. They're coming behind me, and you need to. You need to give them something. That's his whole thing Paul is speaking of here. He says in verse 7, and this is the reason Paul says, whoever goes to war at his own expense, that's not going to happen. If I was in the Air Force, I wouldn't have to buy my airplane, though I would never be there anyway. So that's what he's saying. Who, and then he says, who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its fruit? Or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Yeah, you drink of the milk. I, I can't help but to think of Lori Bowman, her and her chickens. She loves her chickens. Anybody know, Lord knows she loves her chickens. But they just ain't sitting out there doing nothing. They're, they're having eggs. And she's taking advantage of those eggs. That's what the Lord is saying. Paul says, or who tends a flock and does not drink of the milk of the flock? Paul says, do I say these things as a mere man? Are these just analogies based on merely human perspective? No. Or does not the law says the same also? He goes to the Pentateuch. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox. While it treads out the grain. That's Deuteronomy 25, 4. And then he says, Is it oxen God is concerned about? Yeah, a little bit. But he's mainly concerned about the human. Or does he say it altogether for our sakes? For our sakes, Paul says, No doubt. This is written that he who plows should plow in hope of getting something. And who who threshes in hope should part- be partakers. Of his hope, the laborer is permitted to enjoy the material benefits of the harvest. That's what he's saying. Verse 11, Paul says, if we have sown spiritual things, the word of God for you, is it a great thing if we reap your material things? I heard a man say this, you ought to support the place where you get your blessings. Verse 12, if others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? Once again, Paul has started this church in Corinth. He's planted this church. Others have come behind him, taught the word. That's good and well. But Paul is doing all of this because he loves the Lord and he gives no charge. If others are partakers of this right over you, are we not even more? And now he turns on a dime. He's, he's brought a very good case. They have to say, amen, this is right. But he turns on a dime and says, but I don't want anything from you. What a man. Paul says, you patronized me, but you don't have to give me anything. He says, nevertheless, we have not used this right but endure all things lest we hinder the gospel of Christ. I don't want anything getting in the way of me preaching the word, teaching the word, and you're talking about Paul. Did you know Paul asked for money? Did you know Paul is wanting this and Paul is wanting that? That's why Paul didn't do it. He begins to explain why he did not use this right, and he had the right. Verse 14, do you not know that those who minister the holy things And he goes to Scripture. That's my boy. He goes to Scripture to prove his point. Do you not know that those who minister the holy things eat of the things of the temple? Leviticus 16, you can go to Numbers 18. uh, Aaron and his sons, that was given to them. If they're killing these animals and preparing these animals, except for the, the, the burnt offering where nobody got anything because it was all consumed. They either had the, the thigh or another part of the animal. They had the hide that they could use things for. God made these provisions. He says, and those who serve at the altar partake of the offerings of the altar. Even so, the Lord has commanded, he charged that those who preach the gospel should live from the gospel. It was Jesus Christ who said in Luke 10, 7, when he set, sent the, 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 the 70 out, he says, and remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. This is amazing to me that Paul, he has so vigorously argued, I don't want anything from you guys. I don't want anything from you. And he turns around. No, he says, you owe me. I can receive all this. Then he turns around and says, I don't want anything from you. It's amazing that he would do that. Verse 15. But I have used none of these things, nor have I written these things, that it should be done so to me. And I'm not writing it because you owe me. But this is what the Lord has told me to write. For it would be better... Now, listen, this sentence right here that he does not complete, for it would be better for me to die. They fill in the blank right here. We don't know what Paul was about to say. All theologians says he was going to write something else. This is what came out. Better for me to die than that anyone should make my boasting void. Paul says, I want to boast Because I want to boast that I'm not accepting anything from you. And I'm not accepting anything from you. Not to say, hey, look, Paul didn't accept anything. No, Paul is not accepting because he doesn't want anything to interfere with the message he's giving. That's why he does that. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of. For necessity is laid upon me. When he was knocked off that animal on the road to Damascus. God gave him a charge there. He goes on to say, yes, woe is me. And that's a divine woe is me. Something bad would happen to me if I didn't preach the gospel after the Lord has charged me to preach. That's what he's saying. Woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Verse 17, and I, I'm i going to read the ESV because it's a lot better than the, than the New King James here. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with the stewardship. That's what he says. Verse 18. Now, we did this, so I'll just read over these verses quickly. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Speaking of the Gentiles, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel. I lay my life down just like his hero, Jesus Christ, has commanded him to do. Lay your life down. He says he lays his life down for the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. The context of these last verses is selfless participation in ministry. You can take these last four verses one of two ways. You can take them as we read them. You can take these verses as he's not talking about your salvation is, can be taken away. I'm raising my hand. That's what it should be. Now, that's my opinion. But a lot of theologians says he's saying that you're going to be disqualified because of the way you're living. The world will see how you're living, and you're supposed to be living as a Christian, and you're messing up that Christian walk. And so when you go out and you pronounce the gospel to others, they're not going to hear you because they know how you're walking. You with me on that? There's one or two ways you can take this. I don't think the the Holy Spirit would put it down here for that one way because this is too, uh, it's in the scriptures all the way through, but I'll read it. Verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? You're born again, you've been placed in the race. When you're born again, that's the gun. You live for Christ now. That's what he's saying. Paul is encouraging here. He's exhorting here. He says, so run that you may obtain it. So there's a way. He, if he says run in a way that you may obtain, there is a way that you can run and you're just spinning your wheels. You're not obtaining anything. If he says run in a way that you can obtain this, hey, I'm just a, I'm just a lowly high school grad. But I know that's what that means. So run that you may obtain. Paul says run like you're dedicated. You're a dedicated athlete. Every time I read this, I can't help but to think of Michael Phelps who won all those Olympic gold medals for swimming, all the different breaststroke, backstroke, all of the strokes. And I think about the the, the, the Practice and that went into him winning. And even though he got a gold medal, plenty of them, just think of the, the practice he had to do to, just to get the gold medal. There, Paul is making this in the isthmus game. He's saying that you're running, and if you win, you're just going to get an isthmus uh, wreath that after three or four days withers away. At least Michael Phelps gets the gold medal, but it might as well be a reef that withers away for the believers compared to what we're getting if we run properly, if we run correctly, when we get to heaven. That's what he's saying here. That's why Paul says, so run that you may obtain it. Telling me if there's a way that you can obtain it, if you can run a, 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 in a way that, you, sorry, you, you didn't obtain it. You didn't run correctly. And that's what he says here. Every athlete exercises self-control. And notice it says self-control right off the bat. Wow. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. Paul is saying, hey, I'm giving you some, some hints on how I do this. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body. But I discipline my body. But I discipline my body. Why do you read scripture so much? I discipline my body. Why do you pray? I discipline my body. That's what he means there. I just didn't say, I just didn't walk down an aisle and said I'm saved and didn't just continue to live the way I was living. Because some do that. Because some do that. But I discipline my body and keep it under control lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. That's a warning and that's an exhortation. You can take it either way you want to, but Paul is saying you will be disqualified if you don't run the way you're supposed to run. I tell you all about, and I've said it a hundred times, this will make it 101, Mr. Corley. A godly man I used to go to a nursing home and visit, 90-something years old, gray-haired every time I'd go. T- there may have been one time that I went into his room, God is my witness, that he wasn't on his knees by his bed praying. And I'd have to stand by the door and wait till he got through, sometimes 10, 15 minutes. Oh, boy, I didn't know you were here. <laughs> every time, maybe once or twice, maybe once or twice. And we'd read the Bible. I, tell you, I told you, we'd read Revelation. He always read, now is Jesus coming back in the first resurrection and the second resurrection. He already, always got confused in that. I said, Mister Corley, you don't even have to worry about it. He's going to get you. He says, Stackhouse, Stackhouse, there was nobody like him who preached the word. He, this man was from Ohio, and still, and they dropped him off at the Baptist Center, and his family never came back to get him. But a testimony that he was a man of God, that everybody, when they found out Mr. Corley was there, he never did without eating. He never did without change of clothes. God looked after him, my point. And he would still remember, 99 years old, he, and he would tell me, Stackhouse saved a lot of souls. And i never forget the first time because he hit me with a ton, ton of bri- like a ton, ton of bricks. He said, but lost his own. Every time I was seeing, man, it was like he was trying to tell me something. (laughs) Saved many souls, but he lost his own. It matters. Do, this is my opinion. Do you think that Jesus Christ hung on the cross and, and, and suffered the way he suffered and all those things for us to, I'm saved, and then to live like we're not saved. I got some land in the swamp, if you believe that. Not that we're perfect. We're not going to be perfect. But there's a sphere of righteousness that we should walk in. That's what Paul is saying here. Don't get disqualified. There's a way you should walk. There's a way we should live. There's a, and it doesn't, once again, I'll say this over and over again. It doesn't mean we're not perfect. We're always going to sin down here. But my aim is I want to please the Lord. I want to, I want to please you, Lord. You have did too much for me not to want to please you. You put me in the race, and you've given me everything, the Holy Spirit, in me that I should live a holy life. Paul said, don't wind up and be disqualified. That's, that's what he's saying. And that's what the Holy Spirit means. There's going to be joy and rewards for us all when we get there. The race is going to be worth the running if we keep our eyes on Jesus Christ. And he is the engine, the Holy Spirit is, to make sure we're following. There should be no excuse that everyone who started does not finish well. But we have to keep our eyes on Jesus. We have to live for him. That's what he's saying here. I guarantee you that's what he's saying. And it should make us say, hey, I want to endure to the end. I want to live a holy life. You died on the cross in order for for me to live a holy life. That's what he's saying. The worship team can come up. You know When I'm not here on some some Sundays I go and visit churches and I'm amazed at what they teach these days. I'm amazed at what these so-called churches teach. And I don't care if you get up, like I used to tell the youth, and I read from Genesis to Revelation, I'm reading, that might be the safest thing you can do because the word is going to get out, and the word, if your heart is ready, your word, is, you're going to receive it, and then you can walk in it. But the stuff these people are teaching these days, it's crazy. Be like the Bereans. Don't trust me. Prove me. Read it. Read it for yourself. That's what I do. I read it for myself. God has the power to carry us home as long as we're wanting to. As long as we're wanting to. If we're not living holy lives and people see us and, Say, hey, he's a Christian, she's a Christian, and yet we're not living holy lives. It's no telling how many people we're given the keys to open the door of hell. And I just don't think Jesus is going to accept that too long. It matters how we live. And we should all take the exhortation and the warning here. That's what I think it is. Paul said, I'll put you in this game. Now, live for me. And then we go all the way back, and I'll close. He goes all the way back to rights. If you're having dinner with a weaker brother, and you have a drink and you know he's an alcoholic, love would tell you, order a sweet tea. That goes for anything we do. We don't want to see a brother or sister stumble. Whether it's a movie, whether it's a TV show, whatever it is, Paul says, I'll give all those things up because my aim in life is to make sure you're not watching me and I'll make you stumble. That should be all of us. It matters how we live. Let's pray. Father, your words as the... Proverbs say your words are wisdom. You say these things because you want us all to get to heaven. You want us all. You want to tell us all well done, good and faithful servant into the joy of the Lord. It's many things in this world that if we take our eyes off you, we'll be running after them. So, Lord, help us to keep our heart and our eyes locked in on you. Because we're not going to be here forever. We're going to meet you one day. And no matter how we had to struggle down here, we want to hear you say, well done, you good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray for anyone and everyone that might be struggling with a sin or a temptation. Lord, I pray that they would cast all those cares at the feet of Jesus who loves us, who cares for us, who's called us into his glorious home and has given us a race to run. He's equipped us to run it well because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. Let us not spurn his goodness and his grace. I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen. Let's stand and close with a song, please.